Well, just about a month ago, we celebrated the birth of Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's one of the two major festivals, as you know, that we as a church celebrate every year in the life of our congregation. Christmas, and the other one, of course, being Easter. But sometimes I wonder if this might be a little bit strange from an outsider's perspective. That we make such a a, a fuss over a little boy born in a manger. Such a fuss about that that it even spills over into the wider culture that's not even Christian. They know the story too. We place all of our hope in the identity of this little boy and who he'll be for us. It's kind of bizarre when you step back and think about it. At least I think. But then I remember that this is how God has always loved to work in the world. Bringing hope to hopeless people and liberation to oppressed people through the birth of a little baby boy. See, God has a habit of showing His might through the helplessness of infants. After all, it was David who told us in Psalm 8 that the Lord doesn't speak through the mouth of kings or generals or pharaohs, for that matter, to establish His strongholds or to silence the avengers. No, God speaks through the mouth of babies. He speaks through the mouth of nobodies to proclaim His praise. That's how the Lord chooses to speak. And so today, we meet such a meek and mild baby. A boy and a basket by whom the Lord will deliver His people and silence their oppressors. Because today we meet Moses. And in just a few short verses, and over the course of three episodes, 80 years of his life flash before our eyes. And from this babbling baby who grows up to be a prince with a short temper and eventually an exile with a speech impediment, we hear so clearly, so distinctly the voice of the Lord speaking. And we see so powerfully the hand of a gracious and compassionate God acting and freeing. You'll remember the last time we were together, we met an unnamed Pharaoh who the Bible says didn't know Joseph. And even more importantly than that, he didn't remember Joseph's God. He didn't remember that together these were the ones that saved the known world from this withering famine. All he knew these centuries later was the people of Israel, these foreigners, were growing too much and too fast. He couldn't possibly let these foreigners become so numerous, more respected, and more blessed than his own native Egyptians. And so Pharaoh hatches three different plots we read about several weeks ago to stifle the growth of the Israelites, to stifle the blessing of the Lord. First, he tries to enslave them and demoralize them. But that doesn't work. They keep on having children. And then he sends essentially hired assassins to go in and interrupt these childbirths. But that doesn't work either. And finally, he has to to resolve to commit mass genocide against the baby boys of Israel by throwing their children into the Nile to drown. 
this Pharaoh and trying to make his own name and identity great, ironically, is utterly forgotten by history. won't even know his name. And yet, we see the kind of God who is at work here. Because the two we do remember from this account are Shifra and Puah. Two Hebrew midwives. Nobodies, according to the world's eyes, who resisted evil and obeyed the Lord. And they were uplifted and blessed by the Lord with a family in their lifetime. And we have remembered them 3,000 years later. Nevertheless, this Pharaoh would not be satisfied until he can glorify himself and his own administration over God and His covenant. And that's where our story picks up today. Look with me in these first ten verses. Now I really think if we had to come up with a theme for this this entire chapter, a guiding light, an idea as we read through Exodus chapter 2, I think we can focus on the question of identity. What is it that makes this boy and the basket special? What is it that makes him who he is? Why are we telling his story today? And against that question, we watch all other characters in this story recede into the background. We meet people, but we never really know who they are. So for instance, the the passage begins, we meet a Levite man and a Levite woman. That is, people from the tribe of Levi, one of the sons of Israel. But their names are not revealed to us. Not until later, at least. But they get married and have a beautiful little boy. And we don't get his name immediately either. But then we meet the Levite's daughter. And surprise, surprise, one of the characters in the story is Pharaoh's daughter. Again, no names are given. And I think this is because we're really supposed to focus on who this boy will be. Who he is going to grow up into. What kind of man will he become? What will his ultimate purpose be in this life? And so this Levite couple has this baby boy during a tragic and desperate time. When all baby boys born to Hebrew women would be ripped from their mother's arms, snatched from their homes, and thrown into a watery grave in the Nile. Somehow they've been able to elude being found out for some time. And they're able to hide Moses, but he begins to grow. And perhaps he begins to make too much noise as as babies are wont to do. And they have to figure out a way to keep him hidden from Pharaoh's Gestapo. And so his mother comes up with a rather unorthodox plan. She'll build him a papyrus basket. She'll coat it with asphalt. And she'll hide him in the low tide of the Nile River. The place where he is supposed to go to perish is the place where she tries to hide him so that he may live. Now where she came up with this idea, who knows? Desperation leads us to invent a lot of miraculous things. But I can't help but notice how reminiscent this is of another story that came just a few chapters earlier in the Bible. Reminds me so intimately of Noah's Ark. 
when a vessel was created that was seaworthy and it was sealed on the outside with pitch and it was designed to float on waters that were meant to deliver death but would deliver the inhabitant to a new life on the other side. I think there may be something going on there. God's purpose with Noah may be God's purpose with this little boy. The irony, of course, is the the Nile is supposed to be his grave and yet this as his sister watches, becomes his passageway to a new life. In verse 5, Pharaoh's daughter of all people. Pharaoh's daughter! The princess. A child that he no no doubt loved with all of his heart and would be furious if someone came in and tried to kill this beloved child of his like he's doing to these people. She goes down with her servants to Egypt's sacred river to bathe. Bathing in the and what's supposed to be a life-giving source and is no doubt filled with the bodies and blood of children. She goes down there to bathe. And, and, and what's this? She hears something and sees something over caught up in the reeds. And she orders a slave girl to go and open it. And lo and behold, there's a baby boy inside and he's crying. Who is this child? Is it Clark Kent who grows up to be Superman? Is it Harry Potter who grows up to be the greatest wizard the world has ever seen? No. It's nobody that extraordinary. She realizes it's just an ordinary Hebrew boy. One of the children her father was so mercilessly trying to eradicate from the world. But here he becomes discovered by Pharaoh's daughter. Not only that, he becomes pitied and loved by her. Before long, the sister who's out there standing guard sees that a terrible situation is developing. Nobody worse in her estimation could have found this child, save maybe Pharaoh himself. And so no doubt panicking, she, she pops up out of the reeds and says, Yes, he is a Hebrew boy, and I know a Hebrew mother that could nurse this child. There's her Hail Mary pass. And amazingly, Pharaoh's daughter thinks that's a great idea. So his sister goes and gets his mother. Now you can imagine the fear and trembling that would enter the mother's heart when that little girl walked through their door and said, Pharaoh's daughter has discovered the boy. And you need to come quickly. What would she say? What what could she do? And so they come in fear and trembling before the daughter of the most powerful and violent and hateful man that's ever lived on the planet. But surprise, surprise, Pharaoh's daughter asked this Levite woman, to nurse the baby. To sustain him and to give him life. More than that, she offers this slave a paid maternity leave. Something interesting is happening with this child. So his mother gets to keep and nurse him. Ironically, under Pharaoh's protection. But there's a catch and it's a heartbreaking one. Because in verse 10, presumably after three or four years, once he's weaned, 
This mother has to surrender her child to Pharaoh's daughter. Not that he would be her son anymore, but so that he could be the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You can imagine the bittersweet feeling that she's dealing with as a mother. Here she has had this child rescued and saved, but she loses him nonetheless to Pharaoh still. The cruelty of it all. And finally we read that Pharaoh's daughter names the boy. She calls him Moses. This is an interesting name to give this child. Because the uh, scholars believe that this name, this Moses, is actually an Egyptian name. It means child of or born from. For instance, we see other rulers from this time period, Thutmose and Ramesses, both of which have the Mos suffix, maybe slightly changed, but this means child of Thoth, Thutmose, Ramesses, child of Ra. And so, uh, it, it seems that Moses is, is being given a name. He's a, he's a child of the Egyptians. But Moses' name... Interestingly, not only is, is, is given to him by an Egyptian royalty, but it's interesting that his name sounds so close to the Hebrew word that means drawn out of the water. And so here we see, although he's been named one thing and expected to grow up like a proper Egyptian, we see that another identity is already pulling in tension with who he is. Is he going to be the son of Pharaoh or is he going to be the one that's drawn out of the water? And so, will his origin as a Hebrew refugee be drowned out now that he's an Egyptian adoptee raised in a royal court? Who will he be? The text seems to ask us. That's the end of episode 1. Beginning in episode 2 of Moses' life, starting in, in verse 11, continuing on, We read that Moses has now grown up. He spent decades in the lap of luxury. Presumably, he's had a world-class education. He's feasted and dined with all sorts of nobles and and princes from all over the, the known world. He's had servants waiting on him hand and foot. And he's lived a life of total leisure. Maybe even decadence. And yet, something inside of him, after he has all the pleasures that this world could offer, something inside of him still draws him out of Pharaoh's comfortable palace into the slums of his Hebrew family. And he goes out and looks. And he doesn't look down and say, well, thank goodness I I don't live there anymore. He doesn't go out and, 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 and scoff and mock at the Hebrews, but instead he he goes out and sees the brutality of their forced slave labor. He sees the inhumanity and indecency of it all. And and to, to top it all off, when he sees an Egyptian striking down his Hebrew brother, so to speak, a just and powerful rage blazes inside of Moses. And when he thinks no one is looking, a Hebrew now, Moses, 
strikes this Egyptian down in return. It started with an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, but now a Hebrew struck an Egyptian down. And he doesn't just strike him down, he actually kills him. And so just like Moses was hidden in the water unto life, now we see Moses hiding an Egyptian in the sand, but to death as a burial. We don't know exactly what's going on in his mind and in his heart at this moment. But in verse 13, on the next day, he goes out among his people again. He's drawn to them. He's moved by their pains and their agony and their misery. And now he doesn't see an Egyptian and a Hebrew quarreling, but two Hebrews. And Moses steps in. I think perhaps he's expecting to be lauded as some kind of a hero for what he did. But he's received as a villain. So as he tries to break up this fight and become an an arbiter, one of them looks at him and says, who are you to judge me, little rich boy? Scoffing at Moses. Are you going to kill me like you did this Egyptian? It shocks Moses to his core. Moreover, it terrifies him. He's tried to return to his Hebrew roots, but he found found that his own people revile him. Perhaps they're bitter. He's made it out of a a terrible, hard life and grown up with every luxury at his fingertips. Perhaps they resent him for that. But even though he's been rejected there, the problem is that now he can't even return to his Egyptian upbringing, because we just read in the the following verses that Pharaoh found out now what Moses had done. That he had killed an Egyptian and in turn, Pharaoh seeks to kill Moses back. Now personally, I think that while Pharaoh's daughter loved Moses and had pity on him, I personally believe that Pharaoh must have loathed Moses. He loved his daughter and let her keep her little pet in his eyes. But he couldn't stand to look at Moses. Moses was a reminder of his failure to wipe out his enemies. And so now he has the perfect legal excuse to kill Moses and finally purge him from his sight. So now Moses is a man between two worlds. He's embraced neither by Egypt nor by the Hebrews. And so the question of identity rises again as we come to the close of this second episode. Who is Moses going to be? And then our third and and, and final episode begins. He flees east into Midian. That is, into the Arabian desert where Egypt had no interest in mining or trading It was podunk, rocky, sandy country that nobody wanted to be in. He goes out into the midst of death itself to escape. And he tries to figure out, no doubt, who he actually is. What will he be? A man rejected by the only worlds he's ever known. And so in his journey, he discovers a well and he stops there to rest. The text tells us something interesting. Here we have a a, a priest of Midian. Rule is his name. Now this is interesting. I think maybe Rule is maybe the second or third time we we ever hear about a priest in the Bible. 
There's Melchizedek being the first. And then we have this strange worshiper of God. And he sends out his seven daughters to, to, to water their sheep. Now like Melchizedek before him, we don't really know much about rules worship of God. We don't know really what he believed, what his theology was, what his practices were. But we get a hint that he might be a trustworthy character because his name means God's friend. And later in the story, we see that although, again, we never really figure out who this man is or what he stands for, he seems very supportive of Moses' mission and of Moses' God. But what catches our attention here, I think, or what should catch our attention, is that Moses' social concern has not left him. He still cares about what's right. He still cares about justice. Because when some shepherds come and they drive away the daughters of this priest, they drive them away like sheep, Moses is outraged by how they treat these women. And in his righteous anger, he drives them away instead. It seems that Moses cannot tolerate the powerful preying on the weak. That's just something that's embedded in his DNA, it would seem. And then he leads the sheep of these girls to the well and waters them. Now I think there's something uninteresting, or there's something interesting rather, unfolding here. Something that we need to pay attention to. Moses, it seems, if there's anything we can see about what motivates Moses at this point, is he is a person that cares about the right thing. Cares about fairness and justice. He hates to see bullies. He hates to see powerful people crush the underdog. And But here's also the thing that we see. When Moses tries to wield the metaphorical sword and his own wisdom, namely through violent retaliation, it only drives him into exile. So in other words, when Moses relies on his own power to correct wrong, it ends up getting him nowhere. I think there's something that we can learn from this. See, God cares about suffering people. That's not something that escapes His sight. In fact, He draws close to those people. He cares when He sees some use their wealth and power to put others down and to make their life miserable. That's all over the Scriptures. From Genesis to Revelation. And so, as God's people, it is not only good, but necessary that we in turn also care about what God cares about. What's right what's good, what's life-giving. But what we'll discover is that only God can ultimately cancel the power and curse and injustice of sin. Only God can do that. Now don't let that be an excuse for us. Because the prophet Micah would have the followers of God know that he has told each of you what is good And what it is the Lord requires of you to act justly. To love faithfulness and to walk humbly with your God. And if you want to know what that looks like, Isaiah the prophet will agree and says it clearly. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. 
Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. In other words, what motivates God and what should motivate His people is the love and the care for the least of these. Christians don't cuddle up to power and wealth in this world. That's wasting away. We don't look for the people. We don't look for the pharaohs that can ensure the most comfort and leisure for us. Those pharaohs will be deposed one day. And if they don't repent and turn to the Lord, they'll be cast into outer darkness. That's not where our trajectory is. Our trajectory is to be like our God. To be obedient to God in these things by loving God and loving our neighbor. But remember, folks, God calls us to be faithful. He does not call us to even be successful. He doesn't call us to change or, 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 or upend the world by our own power and might. He calls us to follow Him who will do that for us. It's ultimately up to God to set the oppressed free from sin's reign of terror. This is something that Moses will soon learn and something we do well as Christians to remember. God's heart is for the good. It's for justice. It's for lifting up people that are getting violently bullied and exterminated. That's where God's sympathies lie. But it's God who ultimately has to do the saving. Not us. But we're fools to think that we can live and do whatever we want and not care about anybody and think this pleases the Lord. But back to our story. Rule is surprised when his daughters return home early. And he asks them why. And again, another little fun irony for us. They say, well, an Egyptian rescued us. Not a Hebrew. I see him as an Egyptian. While Moses has been rejected by everyone else in this life, this nomadic priest accepts him. And he, and he sends his girl, he says, what are you doing here? Why would you leave him behind? Go get him! And so he brings Moses into his home and, and, and invites him to eat dinner. But that dinner turns into a place to stay, and that place to stay turns into a family to have. And so eventually, in just a few short phrases here, 40 years flash before our eyes. And Moses marries this man's daughter Zipporah, and they have a little baby boy of their own. And Moses names him Gershom, which is a Hebrew word for stranger or immigrant, or as verse 22 says, a resident alien in a foreign land. So you want to know how Moses feels about his identity? What he thinks he is? You can see it in how he names his own son. Is he a Hebrew? Is he an Egyptian? Moses feels as if he belongs nowhere. Here he is now living the life of a wandering Bedouin with a foreign wife and a son whose name means stranger or immigrant. Moses feels like he belongs nowhere. He doesn't know what his identity is to be. 
What becomes of the boy in the basket? Now the man in the mountains? Moses himself can't figure it out. But after a long time, and in these last three verses, we read, Pharaoh dies. And here's the most important thing. The main character of the story comes back into focus. Not Moses, but God. And Moses' identity will be sorted out. Moses' identity and who, and, and who he's supposed to be will be made clear. But it won't have anything to do with who he was born to or where he was raised or what he had done, good or bad, or where he lived or who he married. None of that sets Moses up to be who he's going to be. Instead, his identity will be given when God calls him to go. See, it's God who defines who Moses will be. Not Pharaoh, not rule, and not even Moses himself. But I do think at the same time, God is paying attention to Moses' character. He's paying attention to the longings of his heart. He sees that Moses is one that desires to deliver his suffering people into freedom. See, God sees that in Moses. And I think He graciously acts upon that. Because now we read that God hears the groaning of the Israelites. Their cries of sorrow and grief and mourning and desperation ascend up to Him like an incense offering, like a worship song, even when they don't realize it. They think they're crying out, to uh, nobody. There's somebody that won't listen. And little do they know that God is hearing every word of their prayers. He sees their pain. He knows it. And so God, ever the merciful and compassionate and holy and just God, acts according to His character and His covenant to these ancient forebearers. And He sets into motion Israel's liberation from slavery. And so as we close today and we consider Moses' identity, perhaps it's a good time to ponder our own. Who will we be in this new year? New Year's Day was just, well, it's getting further and further away now, isn't it? Three weeks ago, four weeks ago now. But that question always comes up to us this time of year. Who are we going to be? Well, I want us to remember this. Who we are and subsequently what we do comes to us not ultimately from who we think we are or how we try to actualize and self-realize according to that ideal of ourselves. That's not where our identity comes from. Instead of our identity, our real identity comes to us from who we are in Jesus Christ, who identified with us by being God and yet descended into the shame of taking on humanity. See, when we didn't know who we were, we didn't know who we'd become, we didn't know what to make of our lives, God came down from glory to put put on our indignity 
to make something of our humanity. See, like Moses, Jesus was born in obscurity. And like Moses, Jesus was a refugee from a mad king. And like Moses, Jesus grew up to have compassion for suffering and oppressed people. And like Moses, Jesus knew what it was to be rejected by His own and a threat to the political empires of the day. But unlike Moses, who rose up to strike a man down in vengeance, Jesus was raised up to be struck down for us. For us the sinner. For us the murderers and the adulterers and the liars and the thieves. He was raised up in humility to be struck down for us. God shows His justice not through coming to wield a sword against the world, but by dying for the sake of the world. And remember this, if you remember nothing else this morning, Moses' way of violence, of self-assertion, led him into the wilderness, into obscurity, and ultimately, if it had not been for God, into death. That's Moses' way. That's humanity's way. Violence. Begetting violence. Uh, Tit for tat. Eye for an eye. Tooth for tooth. That's what Moses' way leads to. But Jesus' way leads us out of the wilderness of sin and death and into eternal life and reconciliation. Find your identity, Christian. Not from the boy in the basket, but from the boy in the manger. From the man upon the cross. And from the eternal King rising from His empty tomb. Let's pray. Father, help us to find our whole life and being in Jesus Christ, Your Son and our Savior. It's in Him we are made human again. So draw us into Your divine life through His life given for ours. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray all these things. Amen.